going to be opening your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, the text that Stephen read for us this morning. We are continuing our study in Acts, but we're starting a new series. We're grouping these next series of messages under the heading, Champions of the Church. When we are studying through Acts, we see a lot of historical narrative. This happened, and then this happened, and there are personalities involved. But for the next three characters that are introduced in the, in the, in the book of Acts... Those sections start with their names. The first one is, in Greek, Stephanos, or Stephen, as he's known. And so we'll begin studying Stephen the martyr. Then we come to Philip, and after Philip. These are interesting guys, a lot of truth. That We'll come back and look at uh, Peter, and then at Paul, as the gospel is spread throughout the Gentile world. And then we'll come back and end up the series by looking at John Mark. I've called him John Mark the Faithful which is an interesting title for this message, based upon what we know from the book, for that message, based upon what we know from the book of Acts. But we're going to be looking at these as biographies. And biographies are significant. They are important for us. Uh, Biblical biographies particularly are useful for us. You remember in Hebrews chapter 11, where the preacher is writing to the Jewish Christians who had come to faith in Christ, and he's clarifying the, the, the transition from the old practice of worship to the new practice of worship. And he's encouraging them in chapter 10 through their persecution and the persecution of their friends. And then chapter 11, we have this litany of heroes of the faith. It starts with Abel, and he goes all the way through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He comes down and picks up with Moses. He it deals with other heroes of the faith, and then he moves to the judges and mentions them, and he mentions the prophets, and then he talks about the many who are unnamed, and he's dealing with the individuals as they have been shared. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, the, the follow-up from that list of heroes, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded about with such a great crowd of witnesses, let us also, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so we see that the first thing that uh, that biographies are intended to do or can do, should do, Christian biographies, biblical biographies, is to encourage us and to motivate us. In verse 2 he says, and looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, as he was the perfecter of theirs, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Another purpose of the biographies is to help us keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. As he worked in them, as he worked through them, as he called them, as he equipped them, as he deployed them, so that also... We may know Him better, but we may allow Him to work in us and to work through us. So, biblical biographies particularly are intended to motivate and to instruct and to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes in your outline, that first sentence that kind of heads that up just keeps us focused on the fact that biographies are important. And we're looking at the biography of a very, very unique and special man. But before we get to Him, I want to know about you. Life aspirations. One of the uh, important things that we had looked at, or that we will be looking at, is God's calling, God's mission upon your life, and how that Stephen wanted to be fully used 
and fully expended for the glory of God. We just sang when we talked about God's goodness and how we celebrate His goodness from morning until night. How that His goodness is running after me, running after me. And the next phrase in that song says, With my life laid down, my life laid down, that's true of Stephen, I surrender now. I give you everything. And it is sometimes a little alarming how casually we sing songs that proclaim complete yieldedness and surrender. That claim our identity. And they're good songs. And they are, in many cases, aspirational. This is not exactly who I am now, but this is on the way of whom I'm becoming. I want us to take some time to think about how you see God using you as a champion for His glory throughout your life. I'll never forget, I turned about 45 years old. I'd gotten a new calling, a new job, a new opportunity for ministry. And I was talking to an, an old tried and true pastor in Lexington. His name's Johnny Muller, a good and godly man. And he pulled me to the side and he said, Young man, I wasn't young, all right? Compared to him I was, but, but I was no longer young. He said, Young man, he said, uh, I've heard from several of your peers and potential co-workers that you have a lot of potential. He said, you're 45 years old. Not about potential anymore. How are you being used? How is God using you? You can say, oh, he's got potential, he's got potential, he's got potential. At some point, that potential needs to be realized. Would you agree with that? Oh, I got potential. Always got potential. And as a young person and as you're coming up in your, I don't know, teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, maybe 40s, there's potential. There's potential. Just got to develop that potential. But at some point, that potential needs to be realized. And it can be realized young, and it can be realized at least to a greater extent in age. But there needs to be this continual realization that I am being used by God's Holy Spirit for His glory. To make mature disciples, not only here, but around the world through the impact that He has upon us. And He's got a role for me and a place for me, and I want my life to count for His glory. And to that end, I'm willing to lay my life. What are you willing to die for? And I will just make this statement. Again, in college days when I was a student in the BSU at Furman, we were challenged. Sam Kanata, a missionary to Africa, came and to a conference, and he challenged us. He said, what are you willing to die for? What are you willing to lay down your life for? And of course, you know, we were enthusiastic and bold. And, you know, we're, we're ready to die for the gospel. We're ready to go wherever and do anything. He said, well, I will tell you this. He said, you are not willing to die for something that you're not willing to live for today. You are not willing to die for something that you're not willing to live for today. And so I want us, as we go through the, we're going to look at Stephen, and now I will tell you, most of our biographies in the scripture show all the bad things and all the good things. They show, many of them start with a young person and their calling and their potential and then how that's realized and then how they stumble and how they fall and how they recover and how they're used to greatness of God's glory. And you see it, you see it through the life of Abraham, you see it through the life of Moses, you see it through David, you see it again and again and again. And you get all their foibles, you get all their weaknesses, you get all their failings, as well as how God gratefully used them. I will tell you that in Stephen, we have a chapter and a half to learn all that we 
can know about his life. He's dealt with basically a chapter and a half in Scripture. He shows up early, and his name comes to the fore as a result of conflict in the church. And we begin to see some key things about him. Now, I'm going to characterize my comments on him under five C's, just to follow along with the, the text that we're, we're looking at. Biographies are different than simple uh, pulling out a teaching outline from instructive. This is a narrative, and so we're going to pull some things out. But we're going to look at his choosing, how he was chosen in Acts chapter 6, verses 3 and 5, particularly. We're going to look at his character, how he is described, and how his character is put on display in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And, uh, and nine and other passages in, uh, in Acts chapter 7. Uh, we're going to look at his uh, convictions. We're going to take time in the next sermon on Stephen, part 2. And we're going to look at the things that he believed, the things that he was convinced of, the convictions that he had, and then we're going to look at his courage and how he exercised the courage of his convictions in a hostile environment, as we know, that ultimately resulted in his martyrdom. He was stoned to death, as Stephen read just a little while ago. And then finally, the most fun part of this for me, we're going to look at his countenance. He's described twice. His countenance, the way that he looks, the way that his face looks, is described twice. And I believe there's significance there for you and significance there for me as we study this passage together. So we see... That biographies are important. This biography is important particularly. Again, just a chapter and a half to focus on some of the truths that we need to pull from this life and to see how they apply to us. I want to again reread some of this with a little bit of narrative to make sure that we understand what's taking place. First of all, the Lord Jesus Christ has been to the cross. It was, I want you to pretend we're in that time. Okay, it's this year the Lord Jesus Christ has been to the cross. For them. All the turmoil that happened in Jerusalem and around Pentecost. All the turmoil for the apostles of following the Lord Jesus Christ and then seeing Him crucified and then wondering what was next and hiding, looking for safety and security. And then we have the empty tomb, the resurrected Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ continually appears before the apostles, His disciples, to teach them things that He had already taught them to bring to remembrance and to prepare them. The work that He had done, He accomplished on the cross. His work of saving souls now will be done through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the other comforter, the, the, the other of the same kind, the comforter who will come and indwell believers. And Luke starts in Acts chapter 1 with His work goes on through the church and we see the establishment of the church. There are Jews in Jerusalem and they are Israeli Jews who are uh, Arabic, Aramaic-speaking Jews. They speak Aramaic and Hebrew. They're, they're is kind of Israeli Jews. But there are other Jews in Jerusalem also. There are Jews who speak Greek primarily because they were captured and dispersed. They had been dispersed to the diaspora. Many of them had been enslaved. Now they were set free and they had come back to Jerusalem. Some just for Pentecost to celebrate this and they stayed when they heard the gospel. Some had moved here and established Hellenistic synagogues, Greek-speaking synagogues. 
the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the disciples after 120 days of prayer in the upper room. They come down and Peter preaches the gospel as do the other apostles. And 3,000 are saved. And all of a sudden, you've got this new thing, this church where there's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. A lot of unity, a lot of excitement. Do You see signs and wonders that the apostles are gifted with. And so people are getting healed, physically healed. And people are experiencing miraculous acts. And so there's all this enthusiasm and of course, there's also persecution. The existing church leaders don't like it. And they don't like the threat to their authority and the threat to their teaching and the challenge to their doctrine. And so we have at least two recorded times we've already studied where Peter and John were imprisoned, were beaten, released, imprisoned, released by the Holy Spirit to go out into the temple and to preach again. And so we see the miraculous things that are taking place. And then we come to, of course, a problem. A problem of... A group of people being neglected in church, the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, their widows not being not being given their daily allotment appropriately. And the disciples, we saw this just recently, the disciples said, it's not good for us to leave the teaching of the Word of God. And so appoint for yourselves seven men. So the first thing that we're going to look at for um, Stephen is his choosing, which is a very significant thing. In Acts chapter 6, verse 2, and the twelve apostles summoned the full number of the disciples, the whole congregation, and they said it's not right that we give up preaching give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom to whom we will appoint this duty. So the first thing is they established a criteria. Now, thousands of men We've already had two invitations where 3,000 and 5,000 were recorded. Thousands of men in the church. You've got to pick out seven. These need to be the cream of the crop. These need to be the people who others recognize as walking with God. These, this requires a, a, quite an expectation. And this choosing, they choose Stephen. Stephen, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit of God. The early church would have been very careful in its choosing. From the thousands to choose from, only seven, there was something about this man who made him stand up. And this choosing establishes at the beginning his character, his uniqueness, his dedication. He's the first in the list of seven. He is the only one in the seven who has an additional description. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men full of spirit and wisdom who we will appoint to this duty. And then if you go down to the subsequent verse. Um, and what they said pleased the whole congregation and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And then you have the other six names. What does it mean to be full of faith? It means to be dominated by faith. That means to be His defining characteristic. You've heard of people who are full of anger. You've heard of people who are full of anxiety. People who are full of something. It means that that is an identifiable dominating characteristic in their life, he is described excuse me, as having as a dominating characteristic in his life, faith. Now that is the faith, but it is faith in God. I'm going to try to pull this up and not throw this across the room. Y'all bear with me if I do. My eyes have gotten older. I don't know how that happens. The rest of me has stayed quite young, but I can't see near, near as good as I, I used to could. Now, we know a lot about Stephen's faith. But here's, let, let's kind of back up a little bit. The church has been established only for a period of weeks, months, less than a year. 
We know that Stephen, because in chapter 7 we hear his sermon, you, you see how that he's challenged and how that he had to present a defense before the Sanhedrin in chapter 7. When he's brought before the Sanhedrin by his accusers, they ask him, are these things true? And he gives a long answer. He gives a sermon, if you will. We had a leadership team meeting here last week, and I said, we need to really read all of chapter 7 in one entire sitting. It takes about nine and a half to ten minutes. Is that too much for us to do on a Sunday morning? So I'll ask you, if we were just reading through chapter 7, just reading one sermon that was presented, is that too much for us to read together on a Sunday morning? I will tell you that you need to, it's it's a lot to just listen to. <laughs> it's a lot to just kind of sit in a room and have it read to you when you're not actively involved in reading and studying these scriptures. We're going to look at that passage in more detail next week. But here's what you find. When he's asked, are these things true? His response is, a sermon that starts with Abraham and moves to Moses. And if you want a history of God's dealing with Israel and evidence of Stephen's vast knowledge of the Old Testament that he clearly believes, he summarizes very, very well that history belongs to God and that God has chosen the Jews and here is how God works through the past. What we know about him is that he's very knowledgeable about the Old Testament. But he's only been a believer because the Holy Spirit has only been poured out. The gospel has only been proclaimed. He's one of those Jews that responded, that became part of the church in the launch of the church, as far as we know, as he came through this. Where did he get all that experience? Well, he was a Hellenistic Jew. He was a faithful Jew. He was a Jew who spoke Greek. Probably one of the, at least engaged with, the synagogue of the freedmen. These are Jews that had been from other countries. You get that Peter primarily preached to the Israeli Jews, the Hebrew-speaking, Aramaic-speaking, uh, traditional Jewish people, mostly in Jerusalem. And you get that Paul later becomes a missionary to the Gentiles, the foreigners who speak another language and another culture. Stephen stands in the gap, and he speaks to the Jews who have been living in another culture. The foreign Jews, if you will, that have come back and established a synagogue and are many turning to the gospel, though many obviously having a problem with it. And so Stephen was full of faith as a new believer, but he had been trained as a young Jewish man and taught the Word of God. Now having been trained, he knew about the sacrificial system and he was one of those who was probably in Pentecost to celebrate Pentecost and celebrate God's deliverance through Moses. And he knew about the lamb and the blood on the lintel of the doorpost. And I would imagine that as he sat at the feet of Peter and Nathaniel and John and James and these apostles who had heard Jesus present himself as the Lamb of God, these apostles who had listened to Jesus as he unfolded the Old Testament to them, and they began to unfold it to him, and he began to understand that the sacrificial system no longer has a place because there's one perfect sacrifice, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ, and his blood takes away the sin of the world. And he begins to understand that the, the land that God had promised to Moses and its devotion and its, its importance to the to, to the Jews as God's people is now simply a launching place for God to move and work throughout the world. Not a destination. Not, not, not simply set apart as sacred, but 
set apart as sacred for the use of God as He sends His people and His, wor- and, and, and His Word to the world. We see Him as He begins to understand the role of the priest in the Old Testament and how He was learned and how He was trained and how He knew. Now in the Lord Jesus Christ, He understands that we no longer need a mediator between us and God in the form of another person because we have been given a mediator, the Messiah, the promised one, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to understand, this is a radical transformation that Stephen got and Stephen understood. And we have evidence of that because this is what they accused him. These are the things that they accused him of blasphemy, speaking against Moses and the law of Moses, speaking against the temple and the land. And so he had been trained and now he'd come to Lord Jesus Christ and recognizing that the law was not intended to save but was intended to show us our need of a Savior. He responds. And I just, I I can't imagine what it would be like to have all of your teaching and all of these expectations and all of these prophecies all of a sudden just flood through your mind and say, yes, these are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when Stephen came to know Christ as his Savior, when he was washed in the blood of the Lamb, when he identified with the body of Christ through baptism, he wasn't a part-time Christian. He wasn't a halfway, half in, half out. He was completely sold out. Completely sold out. He met Jesus, the Messiah, and he became a committed disciple. The word disciple even means a learner. I can imagine, again, him eagerly listening to the apostles as they taught. And we will see in more detail next week that he took his teaching, their teachings to his heart, applying them to his life. The Bible also says when in the choosing that he was to be full of wisdom. And that speaks to his maturity. Not only his wisdom in knowing how to accomplish things and how to put into practice truth, but his wisdom as far as the maturity of his character. Are you a mature person? Do you feel like you're a mature person? And I don't mean old. That's a different word. But do you feel like you're pretty mature for your age? Emotionally mature? Mentally mature? Spiritually mature? One of the things that we'll look at as we go through these, we'll see varying levels of maturity at various stages of life when we look at these biographies. But I will tell you that when these folks were told to pick seven men filled with the Spirit of God and of wisdom, filled with faith, Stephen's the first name on the list. Probably the easiest one to select. And it was because of, at least partly, his demonstrated wisdom in applying truth to his life, his demonstrated maturity. One of the reasons that we are not champions of the faith any more than we are. One of the reasons that we are not champions of the gospel in a world desperately in need of the gospel is because of our lack of maturity. I read this in a book recently. And it was a young man talking to someone that he had been observing, who had been kind of a mentor, in some places a competitor. But here's what he said, the younger man to the older. He said, I'll tell you something I learned from you. I learned not to go around squealing when things weren't fair. I learned to shrug off small injustices and to get on with the next thing and to put my energies into the future instead of just whining about the past. I learned not to mind too much when things don't go my way. I learned not to contribute to squabbles, 
but to work toward a resolution of genuine issues. I learned not to contribute to drama, but to try to bring clarity. I learned to focus on things that matter, that really matter. Now that is just a secular description of a young man speaking to an old man in a work of fiction, but I love it. Because so much of our testimony is taken away of its effectiveness and of its demonstration because of our lack of emotional and mental and spiritual maturity. And we get mad about things that don't matter. And we fight over things that aren't important. And we have to have our way and we have to win. And we're not willing to listen. We're not willing to engage. We don't forgive. We can't shrug off small injustices because we are not continuing to grow in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not moving to the next learning, the next lesson, the next step in maturity. Taking the next step of growth. And we are called as believers to continual growth. To continual growth. God intends that we continually grow. This is what is, 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 uh, that Paul prays for in the book of Colossians chapter 1 when he's praying for the church at Colossae. In chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And here's what he prayed for the church at Colossae. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We're speaking of knowledge and wisdom. So that is knowledge applied in life. We're talking about maturity. What is the evidence of maturity? Verse 10, so as to walk, that's so that you live in a manner worthy of the Lord. You live in a manner worthy of God, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Three areas in this passage, it is abundantly clear that you and I should be content. I don't care if you're 9 or 99. These are areas that we continue to grow and develop in. The first, of course, we need to continually be growing in our knowledge of His Word. Continually be growing in our knowledge of His Word. I pray that you will grow in the knowledge of His will, revealed in His Word, in all spiritual wisdom, coming through the Word of God, and understanding given by the Holy Spirit to us as we live in the knowledge of His Word. You and I to be champions of the church, to be God's heroes, to be used by the Spirit of God, vessels fit by use, need to be people who are continually knowing more about the revealed and preserved Word of God. A great violinist in Europe was told by a fan, I would give my life to play like you do. And the violinist's response, that's what it costs. That's what it costs. Too many times we want the laurel of a champion. We want the wreath. We want the medal without going through the work that is necessary to bring it about. And this is a grind, if you will. This is a, a step by step. This is a class by class, semester by semester. This is a race by race, run by run. This is a day by day feeding and feasting on the Word of God, getting deeper, growing in our knowledge of His Word. The second thing, growing in our relationship with Him. He says at the very last phrase in verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. As we spend more time in the Word of God, we see more of God. We give more of ourselves to God and our relationship deepens as we spend time in His presence. And thirdly, we should be continually growing in our interactions with others. We should be continually maturing in how we relate to one another. To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. 
But to live below with the Christians I know, well, that's another story. Too many times we struggle with relationships because we're not selfless. We keep keep our eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not emulating Christ in His compassion or even Stephen, which we will get to, trust me. Hang with me, we'll get there. But as a champion, Stephen had been developed in his early life by the governance of the Spirit of God. He was providentially in that place to hear that message. He was brought to new life. And when his character was on display, he was commit on display before the congregation. He was of good repute. He was committed to grow. Probably the greatest tragedy in life, tragedy in life, is a life wasted. Time wasted. Invested in things that don't matter. His choosing tells us that he wasn't wasting his life. He was in this brief time running after God, devouring God's word, making an impact upon the people around him. And we see that because when we come to verse 8, we're just now to verse 8 of six, but we, uh, of chapter 6, but when we come to verse 8, we see another description of his character. Now, he was a servant. You get that, right? In his interactions with others, when they say, we need somebody to oversee the serving of tables, we need to make sure that food is distributed. This is not a position of honor. This is a role to serve in. And he was anointed, or uh, he was, he was uh, invited to it and blessed in it by the apostles, and he fulfilled that role. But he didn't limit himself to one area of service. That's where we pick up in verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Wow, who does wonders and signs? The apostles do. Why do they do wonders and signs? They do it to verify that their message is from God. There was no written, preserved New Testament at that time. Their scriptures were the Old Testament. How do you know, because we were going from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, how do you know this is God's revealed Word? How do you know this speaker has the approbation, the approval of God upon what he's saying? Well, he's able to do things only God can do. God through him can heal. God through him can do signs and can do wonders and mighty works. And out of the apostles, we have we have Stephen and we have Philip, who are the two who can do it. And both of those are found in these passages that we're looking at right now. But the way he's described in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power. The way he's described earlier was filled with the Spirit of God. For you and I to be champions of God, to be champions of the church, God's people accomplishes God's purpose. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to go to one command. Very simple. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Anybody got it memorized? And be not drunk. Louder. Say it again, Doc. Alright, be not drunk with wine, but be... See how we look it up? Oh, it's there, isn't it? Let's just look up, shall we? And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. All right. That is how Stephen is described repeatedly in this passage of Scripture. And I will tell you, to be used by God, to be a champion of God's church for God's glory in the world, it's a prerequisite. It's a non-negotiable that we be filled with the Spirit. The problem is, too many times we don't know what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. 
I am not going to ask you how many of you have been drunk. <laughs> All right, I don't want to know. If you have been, don't tell me. Okay. But when you drink to the point of drunkenness, you are relinquishing control of your mental, emotional, and physical facilities to the control of that which you are drinking. Yes? To be filled with the Spirit simply means to allow the Spirit control. To set your mind on the things of God. To surrender your body, your hands, your life, your calendar, your resources to the control of God. To be obedient to the will of God is revealed in His Word and is applied to your life day by day by the living Holy Spirit within you. And to look at this, just one word, to be filled with the Spirit. If you just look at the grammar of that word, it's real important, I think, that we, we grasp this. It's an imperative. We're to be filled with the Spirit because God commands it. Because it is He who enables us to live pleasing to God. We're not simply people who make it through the world in one piece. We don't just survive. We are more than overcomers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That only comes through being filled with the Spirit and the power, Spirit and the power of the Spirit. But not only is it an imperative, it's a present tense imperative. Be filled with the Spirit now. And it is a present tense with ongoing uh, action. Being filled with the Spirit is not some sort of spasmodic or yes now, no later occurrence only for special times. You don't get filled with the Spirit to preach or you don't get filled with the Spirit to teach or you don't get filled with the Spirit for this event or that event. It is normative in the life of a Christian. It is living moment by moment, yielded to God, dependent upon Him, trusting in Him. Be filled with the Spirit today. When when Stephen is described as being filled with the Spirit, he's described as being one who had full faith in, full dependence on, full trust in and resting upon the Spirit of God. But in this command, Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the Spirit, that's plural. Y'all be filled with the Spirit. Every one of you be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is not something that just happens on high holy days. Being filled with the Spirit is not something that just happens to high holy people. Every believer indwelled by the Spirit of God is to be filled with the Spirit. And here's the best part. Here's the exciting part. It is in the passive voice. This grammatical classification, this is from Wiersbe, represents the subject of the verb, you, y'all, as inactive, but being acted upon. The filling of the Spirit is not a work of man. Don't you hear that? The filling of the Spirit is not a work of man. The filling of the Spirit is a work of God. You can't work yourselves up to that condition by any amount of tarrying or praying or agonizing. A simple desire for that fullness and a trust in the Lord Jesus for that fullness will result in you being filled with the Spirit day by day. Look up, lean in, surrender. Father, use me for your glory today. Convict me of sin. Cleanse me, forgive me. I want to experience your power today. I make myself. It is submitting your body as members and instruments for the use of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6. Uh, Stephen did. He was, uh, his character is, is amazingly described. This is the one that keeps sinking down. A few things, and, and I'll close. But you notice, full, full, full. If you look at these as descriptors of Stephen in chapter 6, you find that he's full of faith. You find that he's filled with the Spirit. He's full of faith. He's full of grace. And he's full of power. And I want us to look at those just really quick. 
as we get ready to go. Listen, there's a point to us looking at Stephen. We live in a world that needs the gospel. That needs to know that there's hope outside of a bank account that you don't have to worry about, living paycheck to paycheck. Outside of relationships that aren't always in crisis mode. That needs to know that there's hope. There's hope for peace with God. There's hope for absolute truth. Real truth as revealed by God and revealed in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And revealed and preserved in His Word applied to our life. We live in a generation that needs to know that there's no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can't count on our antecedents, our grandfathers and our fathers, to reach this generation. It's our turn. We've had all this potential for so long. And we need to realize it. We've had all this instruction. We've had all this training. And we need to put it and deploy it and put it in use. One of the things that I see most about Stephen, I don't know how old he was. The scripture doesn't tell us how old he was. He was not some wet behind the ears novice, but uh, he, he was probably in the prime of his life. How long was his ministry? From the time he was saved to the time he was put to death and gave his life for preaching the gospel. How long a period of time was that? As best as I can determine from my study of Acts and looking at those who are much smarter than I in texts and commentaries, from the time he was saved to the time he was died was a matter of months. Less than a year. And yet God used Stephen. And did I call him Stephen? I might have used different names. But God used Stephen to be the transition. What we find out is shortly after his martyrdom, the persecution ramps up. The church persecuted, scatters. And all of a sudden now, the gospel is going around the world. And it begins the gospel outreach to the Gentiles. So you have the Jewish gospel reach, the commission that's given to them. Now you have Stephen as this transitional, reaching out to the Hellenistic, the foreign Jews. And then you get the, the spread to the world, to the apostle Paul as a missionary to the Gentile and others. What an impact. His one life made. And folks, as individuals and as a church, we need to make an impact for the glory of God. Our lives need to matter beyond the small circles that we draw around ourselves. We need to be aware of the opportunity and the calling that God has placed upon us. And there will be different gifts and talents and abilities. And there will be different spheres of influence and your sphere of influence may not be measured by the amount of impact that you can see but your obedience even how many people responded in to, to Stephen well let me ask the, ask the question differently Stephen preached one sermon and they took him out and stoned him would you call that a successful message amen God did And so we need to redefine success. We need to make sure we don't have a secular or fleshly view of success. Success is being obedient to God for His glory, no matter the cost, and trusting God with the outcome. Here's what I want you to know. Your life, as you develop your character, as you, as you allow God to develop your character, as you allow God to fill you with His Holy Spirit, your life will have impact beyond what you are able to know, what you will never know until you get to heaven. Amen? 
And we need to live lives of impact. Like Stephen. Full of faith. Man, I'm not going to do it. Full of faith. Full of grace. Grace is a recipient. He was saved by grace. But grace is an expression. I believe this guy was a gracious guy. I believe he was hesed. Old Testament term. I believe he was a guy filled with loving kindness. Wait a minute. They stoned him. Yeah, but even when they were stoning him with a countenance that glowed, a countenance of an angel, he prays and he says, Father, do not lay this sin on their account. He's happy to confront them in their sinfulness, but he's not confronting them in their sinfulness out of some anger or criticism or condemnation that comes from his own personal uh, feelings about them. He loves them. He wants them to know the truth. He does not want this sin laid to his account. I believe he was characterized by external grace, by grace, a graceful life, and certainly full of power. By the way, we only experience power when we have to do something. Y'all know that, right? The dunamis, the dynamite of the power of the Holy Spirit of God was in his life. And according to Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, it's in yours and mine, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And we get to experience that power on demand as we walk in faith and grace. I'm excited about learning more about Stephen. We're going to listen to a sermon next week. Come prepared. Read Acts chapter 7 between now and then. I'm excited to learn more about Stephen. Why? Because I want us to be like Stephen. I want us to be, he wasn't a deacon. Deacons weren't, that office wasn't invented yet. But he was wholeheartedly given to service. He wasn't an apostle, but he was given the gifts of an apostle. He was able to do signs and wonders as a testament to God's working in his life. He wasn't a prophet, and yet God used him to preach and to teach and to inform people of God's word. And we need to ra- allow God to raise the bar on our life, to raise the expectations, to raise our aspirations so that we become at least at some level content in what God is doing for us and in us and through us, but discontent in the sphere of our influence and the level of our maturity that we may continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a unique guy and a special guy. And God used him in a great way. And that is my prayer for you individually. But God, folks, it's my, it's my prayer for us as a church. Do you have to be a big church to reach the world with the gospel? Do you have to have thousands and thousands of members and millions and millions of dollars to reach the world with the gospel? Absolutely not. Look what God did with 12 that He started with. 120 that He started with. My prayer is that we will be like Stephen. Those who are champions of the church of God, accomplishing God's purpose in the world. Father, thank you for the look at Stephen, just the glimpse, the introduction that we got today. Thank you for his wholehearted devotion that is on display for us. And I pray that that will motivate us and that that will challenge us. Thank you that he was filled with your Holy Spirit. And I pray that we will be filled with this same Holy Spirit, that we will be filled as he was that we will be dependent upon Him, empowered by Him, used by Him for Your glory and for the good of the neighborhood and the community that You've called us to reach. I pray, Father, that You will 
Give us the impetus and the motivation to be champions of God's people for God's glory in the community that you call us to be. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.